First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for every story in your word, even the ones like this one that are hard to read and hard to hear. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us through your word today, wherever we are in our walk with you. I pray for those who may be here today that may not have a relationship with you. I pray that you'd work in their heart and draw them to yourself. Father, I pray for every son and every daughter of yours in this place who is trusted in your son Jesus. And yet, Father, we know that at times, even in our Christian life, we may not be walking with you as we should. There may be one who finds themselves at that, that place. Even this morning, I pray, God, that you would speak to every heart as only you can by your Spirit's power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you open with me to 2 Samuel 11, the chapter that was just read for us. Uh, I am so glad that you are here today as we start this new teaching series called I'm Broken. Uh, maybe you can see in the middle of that word, uh, broken, the letters OK. And, uh, you know, oftentimes in our, our culture, that, that's what we're supposed to say, right? If somebody asks you uh, how you're doing, that, that's how you're supposed to respond, right? How you doing, man? Well, I'm, I'm okay. Right? How are you? And, and we say that all day long, right, in, in conversations that we have. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. Even though we very well may not be okay. And I think sometimes that carries over even in our relationship with the Lord. There's so many times when people will say, uh, you know, I'm good with God. I'm, I'm okay with God. And yet the reality is if, if we want to be okay with God, the only way to be okay with God is first to admit that we're not okay. To admit that we're broken. Just like everybody else, we need a Savior. You know, we've studied 1 Samuel and the first half of 2 Samuel uh, pretty much uh, all year last year. We took a break for Christmas, and now we're picking back up with 2 Samuel 11. And so for a long time now, we've been studying the, the life of this man named David. And, and David truly is one of the heroes of the Bible. And the problem, I think, sometimes when we study the heroes of the Bible is that we can start to think, you know, I can never be like them. I mean, they just, their life just almost doesn't even seem real. It just seems like they're so far above me. How could I ever be like this person? And, and really, so far in this story, even though David hasn't been perfect, he, he really almost has been like an unreal, unbelievable character from from the very first time we met David even when he was just a shepherd boy out in the fields David has appeared to us to be a spiritual stud 
And I mean just a spiritual stud, just a, just a regular stud, right? A, a guy who is, who is killing lions and, and bears with his bare hands, right? Who is taking down nine-foot-tall giants with nothing but his sling and his stone. A, a man who had an incredible faith in God. And, and God's hand of blessing has been all over David's life. And by this point in the story, God has elevated David and and made David the king over all of his people, over all the nation of Israel. And and in 2 Samuel 7, God made David an incredible promise that one day one of David's descendants would reign over the throne forever and ever. And the descendant that God was talking about amazingly is his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the names for Jesus is the son of David. This is who we're talking about. And up until this point in David's life, everything has been going swimmingly until we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11. In his book called How to Ruin Your Life, author Eric Geiger points out that it's interesting that one of the names for bankruptcy, one of the types of bankruptcy that we have in our nation is called chapter 11, bankruptcy. And he makes the point that here in 2 Samuel 11, there is a spiritual bankruptcy that takes place in David's life. This truly is an implosion. And this is hard to read. We've come to love David. We've come to admire David. This is a man that's been called by God, a man after my own heart. And yet here he is, and it's almost like he's trying to break all ten of the Ten Commandments as quickly as he can. Right? He covets his neighbor's wife. And then he commits adultery. And by the time this story is over, he becomes a murderer as well. This is not easy stuff to read, but I, for one, am glad that it's in the Bible. I'm glad it's in the Bible for a few reasons. I'm glad it's here because maybe more than any other story in the Bible, this story teaches us that the heroes of the Bible are still broken people, broken sinners like the rest of us. David may have been wearing the crown. He may have been called the king. But just like the rest of us, David needed that one who hung on that tree with a crown of thorns on his head and a name above his head that said, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. David was not the savior. David needed a savior. And so do we. I'm also glad that the story is in the Bible because... As one person put it, Satan isn't really all that creative. And the same methods that he used to take down David are the same methods he's trying to use today to take down us. And we should learn from David's story and take warning. So as we walk through this story today, I want to borrow the title of Geiger's book, How to Ruin Your Life, because really this story is a clinic in how to ruin our life in what I'm calling seven easy steps. Now, these seven steps may be easy, but the consequences are hard. And so as we see these seven steps in this story that David walked down, my prayer is that God would drive them into our hearts and that these seven steps would be seven steps that we would not take. First off, 
You want to ruin your life? The first thing to do is the first thing David did. You just need to disengage from what you should be doing. Disengage from what you should be doing. Look with me at verse 1. It says, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, it's easy to forget that this story of David and Bathsheba takes place in the middle of a war. A war between the Israelites and the Ammonites, a war that started in chapter 10, and we'll still be reading about it in chapter 12. Apparently, they took a break as the winter weather made it difficult to continue the fighting, but now that the spring had come, the battle resumed. And this opening verse really just sets the context for the story of this chapter. And the story of this chapter really doesn't take place on a battlefield, but in a bedroom. But do not miss the language that the narrator uses as he sets the context for this story. He says, at the time when kings go out to battle. This was the spring. It was the time when kings go out to battle. But where was Israel's king? Did he go out to battle? Was he on the battlefield? No, the last line of the verse tells us, but David remained at Jerusalem. And the narrator wants us to pick up on that. He wants us to recognize that something is off here, that David is not where David is supposed to be. And we'll get to what happened in just a moment, but here's the point. None of it would have happened if David had been where David was supposed to be. It's hard to sleep with another man's wife when you're 50 miles away from her. And you know, there's an application in that for us. The best defense against temptation is to stay on offense. To stay engaged with what we should be doing. To be where we should be. To be doing what we should be doing. If you're married today, then keep pursuing the heart of your spouse. Keep dating her. Keep loving her or him. Keep laying down your life for your spouse. Keep pursuing your relationship with the Lord Jesus. Stay engaged. Stay engaged in his word. Stay engaged in prayer. Be active. Be pursuing Christ with all of your heart, friend. Don't disengage from what you know you've been called to do. Because if you do, you might find yourself like David somewhere that you should, shouldn't even have been in the first place. One step closer to a fall. Here's step number two. If you want to ruin your life, then like David, isolate yourself from anyone who can hold you accountable. And you can also see this hinted at there in verse 1 when it says that David sent Joab and his servants with him into battle. And we don't have time today to do a full character study on the character of Joab, but if you study the life of David, Joab played a key role in it. He was David's top general in his army. He was also, and Geiger points this out in his book as well, he was one of the few people in David's life who was close enough to him and respected enough by him that he was able to call out David on occasion and put David in his place. A little bit later in 2 Samuel, we'll read about how one of David's sons named 
Absalom tries to usurp David's throne. To make a long story short, it ends in a battle where Absalom dies. And David is so grief-stricken over his son Absalom that he keeps wailing and crying out, Absalom, oh my son Absalom, oh my son Absalom. And Joab storms into David's presence and he says to him, if you don't stop whining and weeping and wailing, and if you don't get out there right now and sit down in the city gate and thank all of the people who just risked their life to give your kingdom back to you, not one of them is going to keep following you after today, myself included. And David heeds the rebuke of Joab, and he goes out to the city gate. And so some have asked the question, if Joab had been in Jerusalem, would this incident with Bathsheba had still taken place? But he wasn't there. He had been sent by David to the battlefield. We can never know for sure, but we do know this for sure. We all need accountability. We were not designed to make it on our own. We need each other. We need other believers in our life holding us accountable if we are going to live a life that pleases the Lord. And that's why one of the first steps towards disaster oftentimes is when we begin to isolate ourselves from people in our life who can hold us accountable. Sometimes, Maybe this is true for many of you. Sometimes we don't have accountability because we've just never sought it out. Maybe you have a lot of acquaintances, a lot of casual friends, but right now maybe you don't have one close, godly Christian friend that you have given permission to ask you hard questions on a regular basis. Questions like, what are you reading? And what are you watching? What are you listening to? Do you have any inappropriate relationships right now in your life? What are you doing with money right now in your life? How's your time been with your spouse? How's your time been with your kids? How's your walk been with the Lord? Right now, in your life, you have anybody asking you those questions on a regular basis? I have a couple of friends in my life that I've given permission to ask me those questions whenever they want to, and they do, just about every single week. And why do I do that? I do that because I know how dangerous it is to get to a place where you have no accountability, where no one is asking you those hard questions. It's easy to get to a place where David was in 2 Samuel 11, where all our Joabs have gone away. And when you get to that place, there is danger ahead. You're inching closer and closer to the cliff, and you are systematically removing all the guardrails that God has put there to stop your fall. Here's another step to take if you want to ruin your life. See if you can find anything fun to do to cure your boredom. Look with me at verse 2. It says, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. From the roof... He saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. The text says that David rose from his bed one evening, which means that he had just gotten up from his afternoon siesta. 
Now, now, I hope you hear me on this. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a nap. In fact, in my humble but accurate opinion, I believe that a nap is one of God's greatest gifts to mankind. Amen? And yet you definitely get the distinct impression as you read this story that David was taking a nap that day because David didn't have a whole lot to do. He had sent his general away, he had sent his army away, his leadership was away, and he didn't just have a whole lot to do. And so he took a nap. And then he got up from his nap and he decided to, to take a stroll on the roof of his, his house. He's just, you know, all his soldiers are out on the battlefield and the king is just chilling at the palace, right? Nothing to do. And we know from God's word that we have an enemy who is on the prowl, who is looking, seeking those that he can devour. He is ready to take us down. And when we are bored, when we feel like we have nothing productive to do, we become an easy target for the enemy. It's an open door. Why is that? It's because we were made to serve the God who created us. We were made to be on mission. We were made to be on the battlefield, not on the sidelines. And when we're not engaged, when we're not busy doing the things that we've been called to do, when we're just sitting around virtually twiddling our thumbs and staring off into space, then as one person put it, when we're just staring off into space, the Bathshebas that we see are a whole lot harder to resist. Not even because they're so alluring, but just because we are so incredibly bored. When we're bored, sin looks like a whole lot of fun. Pastor J.D. Greer tells a story of an old preacher who used to come to his church each year when he was a teenager, and the old preacher would, would look at those teenagers, and he would shake his finger at them, and he would say, Sin ain't fun. And, and Greer said, I never corrected him, but I always thought, if sin ain't fun, then you ain't doing it right, right? I mean, uh, I mean, we know, right, sin is pleasurable for a season. The Bible tells us that, that there are passing pleasures in sin. If there were not, it wouldn't be a temptation. And yet the Bible also tells us where sin leads, that in the end it leads to death. It leads to destruction. It harms us and hurts us and hurts everyone that we Love, and that's the lesson that David was about to learn the hard way. I don't know if David went on his roof that night because he wanted to see a woman naked. I, I really don't think that's the case. We don't know if Bathsheba was bathing publicly that night because she was hoping to be seen. I really don't think that's the case either. Most likely the the height of David's palace relative to the houses and the courtyard around it is what made this happen. I don't think either of them planned for it, but it happened. David looks down and he sees Bathsheba, and the text says she was very beautiful to behold. Now, now was it sinful for David to see her? And again, I don't think that he went out on the palace looking to see something inappropriate. He just looked and he saw it. There isn't sin in that. You cannot ignore the fact that temptations are going to come. What matters is what we do with the temptation. 
Do we look away? Do we remove ourselves from the temptation? If so, we have not sinned. But if we don't, if we linger, if that glance becomes a stare, if instead of of closing that pop-up ad, we click on it to see more, if we feast our eyes and our hearts and our minds on something inappropriate, well then certainly we have crossed that line into sin. And as we see in David's story, when we do that, we've opened the door for even more sin. David calls over a messenger to find out more. He he probably thinks, well, what's the harm in getting a little bit more information? And when God has said something is sinful, we don't need any additional information. One of David's servants tells him who she is. Look at verse 3, the end of verse 3. He says, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And with that, we've come to step four. If you want to ruin your life, then pay no attention to the flashing warning signs that God has given you. You see, I think this servant knows that he's speaking to the king, and and so he's trying to speak to him very respectfully. But he's also not stupid. I think the servant knows what David is thinking, and so he words his response to his query in this way. He doesn't just say this is Bathsheba. He says, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, incidentally, both Bathsheba's father and Bathsheba's husband were two of David's most elite fighting forces that that the Bible calls his 30 mighty men. That alone should have been enough to stop David, but I don't think really the servant of David was particularly speaking about who Bathsheba's wife was. I think his main point was this. David, isn't this the wife of somebody else that isn't named you? And you know that David, who later wrote in the Psalms, right? Oh, how I love your law. Oh, how I love your commandments. They are my meditation night and day. You know that David, who loved the law of God, knew the law of God well enough to know what God had said. Thou shalt not commit adultery. He knew it. The warning signs were were flashing, and yet he pushed God's word and God's command out of his mind so that he could do what he wanted to do on this particular night. Friend, have you ever done that? Maybe not in this particular area of adultery, but in some other area. I know that I have, right? There's so many times where where I know that this is wrong. I know God's word well enough to know that this is sinful. And yet stupidly, foolishly, I plunge into sin. And what happens? What always happens when we sin? We hurt ourselves and we hurt the people that we love. This is what David does. And yet there was a warning light flashing and there was a clear way of escape. David could have gone inside and asked them to bring him his harp. But he doesn't do it. You know, there's always a way of escape for us. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. In other words, we can't say there's no way that I could have resisted it, according to the word of God. But with the temptation will also make a, what? 
way of escape that you may be able to bear it. There's always a way of escape if only David had taken it. But by this time, he thinks that he has to have this woman. And he's going to have her, no matter what. The action moves very quickly now. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, Then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. She was cleansed from her impurity. She returned to her house. We've come to step five, to the fall itself. You want to ruin your life like David did, did, then just indulge your sinful desires and tell yourself, I deserve this. Why did David do it? Despite the warnings, despite the fact that he knew better, why did he do it? I, I think maybe he thought that he was the king and so he could do whatever he wanted, that he was entitled. After all that he had done for the kingdom, after all that he had done for the, for the people, if there was one particular woman that he wanted, then he should be able to have her no matter who she was married to. Maybe that's what he thought. I don't know, but somehow, some way, he thought he could just send messengers and, and take her. And, and out of all the verbs in verse 4, that's the key verb. Took her. David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. And he lay with her. You know, we're not told by the storyteller whether Bathsheba was a willing participant or not. We can only speculate. We do need to remember how little a woman would have to say in this particular culture, especially when dealing with the king. But the storyteller doesn't want us to focus on her or assign blame to her. The storyteller wants us to focus on King David. And all the blame in this story squarely rests on his shoulders. He is repeating the scene of the Garden of Eden. He saw. He wanted. He coveted. He took. And he ate. And his life would never be the same. I don't know what the area of temptation is for you. Maybe, maybe it's in the same area as it was for David, as it is for so many men. The allure of sexual sin, pornography, inappropriate relationships, even adultery. But maybe, maybe you're not wired that way. Maybe Satan fires his arrows at you in a different place. Maybe for you it's the allure of material things. You never feel like you have enough. You always need something else because you don't feel like God is enough for you. Maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe it's some other escape, some other addiction that you go to to soothe your soul and to make you feel like life is bearable. You indulge yourself and you tell yourself, I'm entitled. I, I deserve this. As one person said, David had the power to sin, but he didn't have the power to avoid the consequences. Verse 5 is the only time in this story when Bathsheba speaks. She sends a message to David. I am with child. David's sin has found him out, as sin always does. And now David had a choice. Would he confess his sin? Would he admit his sin? Would he repent of his sin and take whatever consequences would come? Well, sadly, David does not choose to go that route. We're going to go more quickly with 
the remaining verses in this chapter because essentially the rest of this chapter is step number six. If you want to ruin your life like David did, then even after you do fall, don't stop there. Dig the hole deeper and try to cover up what you've done. You know, there's an old saying, when you're digging a hole for yourself, put down the shovel. David doesn't do that. As you read this chapter, he gets in deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's, and it's ironic, isn't it? He's so concerned that people might find out about what he has done. And yet, how many people know about what David did now? Everybody. In fact, this is one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. Basically, David's cover-up plan involves getting Uriah to think that the baby was his. Normally, that would be easy to do, but when the husband is miles away on the battlefield for months at a time, it can prove more difficult. And so David sends for him and calls for him to come home. And when Uriah comes into David's presence, in verse 6, he starts to interview him. How's the war going? How's the battle going? Not that David cares a lick about any of that at this point. But he needs Uriah to think that that's why he called him home, to give him an update on what was happening on the battlefield. And after the interview is over in verse 8, this is what David says. David said to Uriah, go down to your house now and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. Washing your, your feet in that culture would have been the last thing you would have done before getting into bed. The message is, is clear. Go home, wash up, and enjoy your gorgeous wife. And it says he sent on a gift after him. And we don't know what the gift was. Maybe it was chocolate-covered strawberries and a bottle of wine. Maybe he sent a string quartet to play softly below their window. It's, it's clear what he's trying to do, isn't it? He's trying to set the mood. He probably thinks, problem solved. I know what this man's going to do. But he was wrong. Because Uriah never goes home. Instead, he chooses to sleep at the king's door with all the other servants. And when David asks him why, Uriah gives a pretty moving speech in verse 11 where he shows what an honorable man he is. And he says, there's no way that I'm going to go home to my wife when the rest of my soldiers, when my comrades in arms are out sleeping on the battlefield tonight. I won't do that as your soul lives. And you know, if David's heart was not already so hard... That should have been a very convicting thing to hear. That here is this man who had too much character to go home to his own wife because the battle was still going on, and yet David was willing to go to someone else's wife while his soldiers were fighting for him on the battlefield. But David pays it no mind. He just moves on to plan B. And plan B is to get Uriah hammered and to see if in his inebriated state he loses his defenses and his self-control and goes home and so the first part of his plan works he invites Uriah to the palace and apparently Uriah uh, does like to put down a few Bud Lights and so he does that with the king and he is totally inebriated the text says but does he go home no he does not he staggers back to his place and Sleeps right there in the same spot as he did the night before. And so now David is starting to panic. Now David does something that I'm sure he never thought he would do. 
He comes up with a plan to take Uriah out so that he can take Bathsheba to be his wife and cover his tracks that way. So he writes a letter to Joab, the general, and says, put Uriah where the battle is the fiercest. At just the right moment, back away from him. Let him die. Don't miss this. Who carries the letter from David to Joab on the battlefield? Uriah. David knows that Uriah's character is such that he will not break the king's seal and read that letter. And so Uriah unknowingly carries his own death warrant and hands it over to the general. This is how far David would go to cover his sin. You know, this story is a striking illustration of what James wrote in James 1.15. Look, look at this verse. For when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Sin starts where it always does, with an evil desire. But when it is all grown, it gives way to death every single time. And at this point, David did not care. Nothing mattered to David now but fixing this problem so he can move on with his life. And friend, maybe right now in your life, you're at the same place that David is. Maybe right now, instead of facing some sin in your life, instead of confessing it and admitting it and repenting of it, maybe right now you have been covering it. You've been sinning more and more and more in the process of trying to cover your sin. But because you're actually not dealing with it, because you're actually not confessing it to God or to the person that you have wronged, it is eating you up on the inside. And if you're a child of God that has the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you, I know for a fact that it is eating you up on the inside. How long has it been like that? What kind of a toll has your sin been taking on you and taking on your relationship with God? What kind of toll has it been taking on the other relationships that you have in your life? Just because you're doing what David did, you're covering your sin. And the Bible says, whoever tries that, whoever tries to cover his sin, will not prosper. We're not told how Joab felt about what David was asking him to do. But he does it. He puts Uriah where the fighting is the worst. We find out in the letter that, or the message that he sends back, that it wasn't just Joab that died, that other servants of the Lord, other soldiers in David's army died as well. Verse 17 tells us that. Some of the servants of David fell that day. Think about how many lives, how many families we're now affected because of the spiral of David's sin. And friend, think about it in your own life. Think about how many lives would be affected if you were to fall into sin in the same way that David did in this story. If you're married, think about how it would affect your spouse, your kids, your parents, your spouse's parents your friends, your Christian friends? What about your unbelieving friends who are just looking for a reason not to believe that Jesus is true? Think of the wake that one sin can leave behind. After the battle was over, Joab sends back his messenger to tell David what happened. It, it seems like he's 
afraid that David might be angry because of the number of people that died. And so he preps the servant on what to say. And he he tells him, make sure you close with this. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Because Joab knows that's the only thing that David cares about anyway. And so he sends the messenger back. And sure enough, he delivers the message and he ends that way. Uriah is dead. And David's reply in verse 25 almost could not have been more heartless. Look look at it. David said to the messenger, this is what you shall say to Joab. Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Right? You know, so what happens in battle, right? Some people die. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And so encourage him. You know, the line in what David said there that strikes me the most is the first thing that he said. Do not let this thing displease you. I think David was talking to Joab, but I think David was also talking to himself. He was telling himself, David, don't let this thing displease you. It's a battle. Things happen. People die. Just move on. Here's the seventh and final step to take if you want to ruin your life. Just ignore your conscience and move on and pretend it never happened. You know, God gave us a conscience as a warning system to tell us the difference between right and wrong. But Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4 that if we ignore those warnings long enough, that our conscience can actually be like a shirt when you leave an iron on it for several hours. It becomes seared and crusty and hard, and it no longer works. And so the warning lights are flashing, but we do not see them. The warning bells are ringing, but we do not hear them because we've ignored them for so long. That's the place where David was. And I think sometimes we do the same, even though it's impossible to do. We just think, I'm just going to move on. I'm going to pretend like this never happened. I'm sure it'll be all right. That's what David tries to do. Verse 26 tells us the soldiers came to Bathsheba's door and knocked on it and said, Ma'am, I'm sorry to inform you. And delivered the message that her husband had died. The time frame for official mourning in that culture was seven days, one week. We're not told whether Bathsheba mourned a ceremonial way only or whether her mourning was deep and profound and heartfelt. Again, the focus is on David and what he does. After that one week was over, he sends for her again, takes her for the second time, this time to become his wife. Verse 27 says time went by. Nine months passed. The child was born. Now David had a new wife and a new son. It seemed like nobody was the wiser. And then we come to what is literally the bottom line of this chapter. And and it's such a powerful thing to read because all the way through this whole chapter, the the storyteller doesn't make any comments to us about the morality of what David is doing. There's hints along the way, but but nowhere is a moral judgment given. And it almost leads you to a place where you think, is God even here? Is, Is God even observing this? Is he even watching what David is doing? And here in the last line of this chapter, we see, oh yes, God has been watching everything. And this is what it said, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David may have thought that he got away with it, but God saw what he did, and he was not pleased with his king. 
This is how Dale Ralph Davis put it. He said, David may have Bathsheba's flesh and Uriah's blood, but he will have to face God's eyes. So will we. Because, of course, God has seen everything that you and I are doing as well. You know, before we're through, I just want to be clear this morning on, on what I'm saying and, and what I'm not saying. And there may be some of you in this room, and, and, and maybe you have had a fall like the one that David had at some point in your past. And, and maybe you've already dealt with that. You've, you've already brought that sin to the Lord. You have confessed it. You have repented of it. You've confessed it to the people that you have wronged. You have repented of it. And, and the Lord has brought healing and he has brought forgiveness or he's in the process of bringing that healing. I want you to hear my heart. My intention today is not to dredge up all of that old stuff that you've already dealt with and, and heap condemnation upon sin that God has already forgiven. That's, that's not my intent. Can God forgive even as ugly a sin as the one that David committed in this chapter? Yes, he can. Praise God. That there is no sin that is so ugly that the beautiful grace of our God cannot cover it. But, but I do want you to hear those that I'm, I'm speaking to today, those that are, that are on my heart. First of all, I'm speaking to Christians who may sit here today and may think, well, I would never do that. I, I could never do that. I would never do something like what David did here. And I want you to hear me with all the love in my heart. David is a better man than you. And he's a better man than me. And if it happened to him, it can happen to you. The Bible says, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he falls. I'm also speaking today to the one who is at that point, that moment of temptation. I don't know where the area of temptation is for you, but maybe right now you are at the brink, you're on the cusp of making the worst decision of your entire life. And I want you to hear this. We're going to study this for the rest of 2 Samuel. The decision that he makes in this chapter will affect the next 20 years of his life until the day he dies. Does God forgive him? Yes, he does. And we're going to see that next week. But David will live with the consequences of this sin for the rest of his life. And so will you. Friend, if you see the warning lights flashing, then run, flee, and run back to the Lord. And believe that his way is better, even if it's hard. I'm also speaking today to someone in this room who has just fallen or is falling right now, someone in this room, and you know it, there is, there is sin in your life that maybe nobody else knows about but you. But you know as you read that line, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And you know right now there's something in your life that you have done that has displeased your Lord. And you haven't dealt with it. You haven't confessed it. You haven't repented of it. Maybe you're trying to bury it. There's mercy with the Lord, but you have to come. We have to come and repent of our sin. And I want to invite you to do that right now. I want to ask you to stand if you would. And as we sing this song of invitation, I want to invite you to come. If, if you're here today and God is speaking to you, maybe again, there's, a, there's some sin in your life. You just need to come to this altar and confess it before the Lord. 
There might be somebody you need to go to after the service is over, but the first person to go to is God. And so just come and pray and spend time with him. Maybe you want to come and kneel at this altar, not because you've fallen in some way, but just because you know that you could. And you want to come to this altar and you want to pray and you want to say, God, would you strengthen my hands? If it happened to David, I know it can happen to me. God, hold me close to yourself that I might not fall. Whatever God is saying to you, if you need to speak with the Lord right now, you can kneel where you are. You can come to this altar and kneel. Let's sing together.